0: just about down before your throne see your face i cry out because you're holy holy
1: I hope you guys are as ready to listen as I am to talk. I <laughs> felt like I was chomping at the bit over there, just ready. Um, just just hope, so encouraged this morning in our worship, and I uh, hope you are. I hope you are taking those words to heart and thinking about the promises behind them, the assurance that we have, the confidence that we have in Christ. We're going to need that, that confidence. Do you remember in an earlier chapter in the book of Acts, a gentleman by the name of Gamaliel? Do you remember Gamaliel? Gamaliel was a leading Jewish rabbi of his day. He was a very influential scholar, teacher. He was a member of the ruling Jewish council. He was one who was aware of what was happening with this growth of the the church. Um, He was privy to the story of resurrection. He was seeing the number of converts that were coming. He was part of that religious Jewish council that asked this question in Acts chapter 4, verse 16, talking about all these new believers What are we going to do with these men? What are we going to do with these men? What are we going to do with this movement that's all around us, this growth that's happening to us? We're losing control. We're losing influence. This is getting outside of our hands. What are we going to do with these men? Their response to the growth of the church, as we saw in Acts chapter 5, was the beginning of real persecution. The apostles were rounded up. They were not only imprisoned, but they were beaten. They were sternly instructed to cut this out. Stop talking about this Jesus. But we know what their response was. The response was they never quit. They persisted. Even when they were released, they went right back to it immediately. They never stopped telling the news of Jesus. Well, Gamaliel advised the religious council, the religious ruling people of his day, regarding these people, regarding this new church. This is what he told them in Acts chapter 5, verse 38. I tell you, keep away from these men And let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Incredibly wise. Let's leave them alone. Let's see what happens. If it's just man-made, it'll end. It'll die out. But if this is of God, there's nothing that we can do to stop it. Let's pray about that this morning. Father God, I pray that everything that marks your church here, this branch of your body, this outpost of your kingdom, would be about you and for you and by you. Lord, those things that are about us or for us or by us will inevitably fail. But that which is yours which belongs to you, which is empowered by your Holy Spirit, which is faithful to your mission, which is about the glory of your name, which honors King Jesus, is unstoppable. Father, make us an unstoppable people, an unstoppable force for your sake. Father, encourage us collectively, but also personally, to persevere, to be bold, to stand fast, to move forward, to be useful to your your great mission. Father, we are your people. Encourage us today by your word and your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name, Amen. amen. Why do we need encouragement? Because the world that you and I live in, I suspect is soon going to be not so different than the world of the early church in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts chapter 12, we begin to see the increasing persecution of the church the escalation of antagonism animosity outright persecution of the church starting in verse 1 acts chapter 12 says about that time Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church now this Herod is not the same who sought the death of the infants during the time of Jesus this is the grandson of that Herod this is Herod Agrippa not Herod the great Look at his persecution. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. James, one of the two sons of thunder, sons of Zebedee, one of those two close, one of those three men in such close fellowship to Jesus. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending, after the Passover, to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Let's consider the time he's talking about here. About that time. What's the time? The time is the flourishing of the church, the explosive growth of the church. Look what we've seen so far already. In Acts chapter 3, we saw 3,000-plus conversions at Pentecost. Since Acts chapter 3, we see the gospel spreading to the Samaritans and the falling of the Holy Spirit on them. We see the Ethiopian eunuch coming to faith, and he will also take the gospel southward. He'll take the gospel to a whole other continent. We see Saul of Tarsus coming to faith miraculously. We see Cornelius of the Italian guard in the Roman capital city of Caesarea coming to faith. And now the gospel is spread to the huge Gentile port hub of Antioch. This is what's happening in these times. And then this major setback, this major pushback from the enemy. And and I want to make this point, which I, I think is implicit, but let me make it explicit in this text. You and I have to understand, just as surely as they understood in the first century, that we are always, we are in a perpetual state of spiritual warfare we don't tend to look behind the scenes, I, I, I'm afraid. And I'm afraid sometimes we don't consider the spiritual reality all around us. I mean, this is spiritual warfare. When we talk about the gospel going out into these places, we're talking about the kingdom of God advancing. Remember, that was the heart of the gospel. Jesus says the kingdom of God is here. It's now and and yet to come. And here's how you enter into it. I'm the king, and I'm the king made made so through conflict i'm going to conquer sin i'm going to face temptation and i'm going to face it down and never sin i'm going to destroy the power of sin on the cross deliver you from it i'm going to destroy death itself our great enemy and my resurrection i'm going to establish the kingdom through my work and one day you're going to see me return in glory and the kingdom will be established forever in a new heavens and new earth. This is a real kingdom that Jesus is coming to establish. And as his kingdom advances into the kingdom of darkness, don't think that the kingdom of darkness is not going to push back. Don't think the enemy is not going to fight back for the land that he has lost, the ground that he has given up. You know, Reagan mentioned just a while ago something that we ought to be celebrating. Fifty years of a culture that celebrated, endorsed, encouraged death, and now we see deliverance from that culture. Don't think that the enemy will not push back hard. Don't think spiritual warfare will not escalate. Don't think the challenges to the church are just beginning, or not just beginning, because they are. And so we see this huge pushback. And now James, the brother of John, is killed. And not just James, now he's going after the, the biggest fish, Peter. He's going to the top of the chain, the most influential leader in the early church. And assuredly, his intention for Peter is the same as it was for James. And the only reason he hesitates with Peter is because he couldn't do it during the Passover. So he's holding Peter until the Passover is over, and then he's going to present him before the people in some sham of a trial, and then presumably the exact same thing that happened to James. Execution by sword, a political execution, is going to happen to Peter What does this tell us about persecution? I mean, think about this just for a moment on a very personal level. Sometimes I'm afraid we think it couldn't happen to us. It could never happen to me. You know, God's favor is on us. God's favor is on me. God would never let that happen to me. God would never let that happen to people I know, the church I'm a part of. God allowed it to happen to James persecution should not be considered by us. And the Bible speaks this again and again and again. It should not be considered by us an outlier to normal Christian living. Something that should never be expected, never anticipated. In fact, persecution is normal and expected wherever the gospel is advancing. There's there's no reason for persecution to come if the gospel is not advancing. If the culture that we live in can get us to acquiesce, if we care more about people's opinion of us if we care more about being accepted by the culture the society in which we live if we want to fit in well if we want to be fully assimilated we don't have to fear persecution if we don't stand up for what we believe if we don't tell the good news of the gospel if we don't speak of the exclusivity of christ if we don't hold forth a consistent christian worldview if we don't talk about godly values and morals we have nothing to fear if we shrink back if we become like everyone else there is no persecution persecution is commensurate with the advance of the gospel where people are talking about jesus where people are living for jesus where people are pushing the agenda of jesus you can expect that the enemy is going to push back and it's kind of interesting in this text just a little little phrase a little side item so Herod agrippa presumably for political reasons to quash this movement which he sees not as spiritual but as political as an emissary as a puppet of the romans he executes by sword james then he intends to do Peter 2, presumably with the thought, if we take these two leaders out, the two primary leaders, we cut off the head of the snake, the whole snake dies. The whole movement will die. But then it says in this passage, when he killed James, listen to the response of the people. He saw that it pleased the Jews. That's very telling, isn't it? He saw that the execution of one of the two great leaders of the early church in Jerusalem, pleased the Jews, it tells us something about persecution. That the level of persecution that we're going to face, that the church faces, is directly related to the culture of its mission field. That's what I'm saying. The level of persecution that any Christian, any church ever faces is directly related to the culture of the mission field where it labors. In in other words, if the culture is antagonistic towards the mission and the church, you can expect that persecution is going to escalate. Why is persecution uneven across the globe? It has everything to do with the people who live in those places and the government that they live under. As our culture begins to shift its mindset, as our culture goes from appreciating Christian influence being influenced by Christians, and then moves to ignoring Christians and disregarding Christian influence, to now being antagonistic towards Christians and seeing our influence as negative, as oppressive or evil, what should you then expect? You should expect that persecution will in fact please our culture. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to live in a culture that opposes you, where persecution Escalates. that's pleasing to the people, where you're seen as the problem, where your biases, where your opinions, where your beliefs, where your practices are considered negative for the culture, that's what we live in, and we see this escalating. But here's the good news in the face of all of that, and we see this again and again, and this is one of the values of having the history of a book like Acts. God is always at work, and it is through God's sovereignty, the providence of God, God's hand, seen and unseen, that makes persecution serve His mission. God always makes persecution serve His mission. In fact, what we find, both in history and in Scripture, prosperity seems to negate the mission. Comfort, convenience, those things tend to dull the mission. And and we've seen this historically, ironically. The more prosperous a culture is, the less generous they tend to be, particularly when it comes to mission causes, gospel causes. In the most prosperous cultures on the planet, we also find the most selfish Christian cultures on the planet. Where oppression is greater, where persecution escalates, we find people actually being exactly what we see in the book of Acts. We find them being generous. We find them being intentional. We find them being missional. It's prosperity that dulls us, not persecution. And God always takes this persecution. It's not the only way. It's certainly not the only way. God has blessed the church in good times as well as bad. But it is a frequent frequent way. Not a way that we would choose, but a way that by God's design, God's own intention, certainly God's allowance, persecution happens, and through it, the mission grows. That tells us something about the value of the mission, doesn't it? It's not that God doesn't love you. And it's not that God doesn't know you personally. And it's not that God doesn't care about you and your situation and your concerns. We have to understand that God is about something bigger than us. Now, I wish I had time to make this point a little longer, a little bit better. So much of modern Christianity over a long period of time has built this philosophy into us, so much so that it's just normal and unquestioned, that everything really centers around Me. What pleases me? What satisfies me? That God is there ultimately for my sake. What I want. What I think I need. What I feel. We've lost sense of the grandness of God, the hugeness of God, that God is about something bigger and greater. And one day you and I are going to get this. When we sit in glory with all the redeemed, we'll understand that God's mission really was more important than my personal comfort we'll understand that even if we suffer for the sake of Christ, even if we had loss, whether that's friendships, whether that's financial loss, or whether it's legitimate persecution, real persecution like we see in Acts or like we see in so many other parts of the world, we'll be able to say without doubt, no equivocation whatsoever, this is worth it. read an interesting story, just one of probably tens of thousands like it, I pull it just as a snippet of an example of how God works in mission. This one goes way back to 1985. A pastor by the name of Haristo Kulachev pastored a congregational church in Bulgaria. He was arrested and put in prison, and the charges against him were that he was not the official pastor. What does that mean? Well, the state government had appointed a pastor, not chosen by the congregation, but state approved to pastor the people replacing this pastor, but he didn't step down. His crime, he continued to preach. He continued to lead his church. As a result, he was sentenced to eight months in prison. During his time in prison, what did he do? He continued the mission. He took the opportunity in those eight months, I will make Christ known here. If, God, you have put me here, if you've pushed me out of there, if you've allowed it to happen or caused it to happen, either way, here I am and I trust your sovereignty, I'll make you known here. When he got out of prison, this is what he wrote. Both prisoners and jailers asked many questions, and it turned out that we had a more fruitful ministry there than we could have ever expected in church. God was better served by our presence in prison than if we'd been free. God was better served. God is not a narcissist. He's not an egoist. But where God is best served, we are best served. Where God is most glorified, people are most blessed. And if God is at work in this world, and he is, to best serve his own mission, that's for the benefit of us all. And we've already seen in Acts chapter 1 how God makes persecution serve mission, right? Do you remember the story of Stephen on that day? The day of Stephen's murder? A great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea and Samaria. This is God at work always. So it's pretty clear in Acts chapter 12, Jerusalem is not going to be the sort of place where the gospel is going to flourish. It's not going to be the sort of place that can serve as a consistent long-term hub of church planting and missional efforts. But Antioch will be. Antioch will be that place. Antioch will be that center. Antioch will become that hub. And so God is pushing his people out. And know this, whether it's the church of the first century or the church of the 21st century, we can be confident of this. Persecution has never stopped the church. It may relocate it. It may diversify it. It, it. it may shrink it for a moment. It may refine it. But it always will purify it. Always will call it back to its real mission. And God is always sovereign. It will not be stopped. And that's just a confidence I want you to have. It's not going to be stopped. Gamaliel is right. If this is of man, it will fail. But this is of God. There's nothing that we can do to stop it. But now... James is gone. Peter is in prison. The leadership of the church, the primary leadership of the church is now threatened. And the church appears to be powerless. From an outside perspective, it looks powerless. They don't have political influence. There's no one advocating for them. They have no social standing. They're social pariahs. They're an unwanted part of the community now. They have no armed might. There's nothing they can do. They can't go bust Peter out what have they got? They're powerless. But we know that's not true. Now, from worldly perspective, that looks true. Who are these people? What can they do now? And surely that's what Herod Agrippa thought, but he didn't anticipate divine intervention. He didn't anticipate the power of God. You see, the people have, as we have, a heavenly Father who's accessible to us by prayer. Now, when I wrote my notes this week, I'll just give this little confession. I wrote this. I made this statement, and I quickly corrected myself because it's a misnomer. It's a modern misnomer. I said they didn't have any power except the power of prayer. But it's really the power of God, accessible to us via prayer. It's not that our prayers are conjuring up something. It's not that our prayers are stirring up some spiritual energy. It's that you have a Father who hears you. You have an intercessor who goes before you. And when you don't know what to say, and you're not sure how to say it, you have a spirit that speaks for you. And through those, you have access to the throne of power. That's God's. And in prayer, there's God's power. So I love this verse in verse 5. It's a great transition of this chapter. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Peter's in prison. James is dead. And the church is praying. Persecution or just any sort of hard times, difficulties, pain, great suffering, loss, whatever. When life comes against you hard, when the enemy attacks strong, it can push us in one of two directions. We can despair or we can go to God in prayer. We, we can throw in the towel. We can give up. We can, we can start self-pity and mourning. We can be discouraged, despondent we can we can be pushed to despair. What do I do? There's nothing I can do. I just throw in the towel or we can be pushed to prayer. It's not a bad thing, by the way. For me and you personally, it's not a bad thing for our spiritual growth and health for circumstances of life to push us to prayer. Those are actually moments of grace. Those are moments of grace. Those moments where you come to a realization, I don't have this. Those moments where you realize that old Christian cliche, God will not give you more than you can handle, is bunk. Those moments where you're there before God, whether it's on your face or on your knees or standing or prostrate on the floor, where you say, God, only you. Only you. Peter's not getting out of this prison except for God. There is no political appeal to be had. When the hearing comes, they know the outcome, which is already inevitable. He's guarded by four groups of Roman guards. He's chained to them. Prayer. That's it. Despair or prayer. Let me give you some thoughts just for a moment real quickly on earnest prayer. There's a descriptive word before the prayer. They didn't just pray. They prayed earnestly. What does that look like? What does that mean? give you just a few thoughts on this. First one is this. Earnest prayer. Earnest prayer is impervious to setback and loss. Don't you think when James got picked up, they prayed for him too. Don't read into this text, James, ah, we can live without him. Peter, we need to hang on to him. That surely was not the response of the people. When James was taken, don't you know they prayed, God, deliver him, God, save him. God, protect him. They prayed. But then he lost his head. God allowed that persecution to come. And remember, Jesus had told James and John that, be careful what you wish for. Remember, James and and John, they wanted to sit right there beside Jesus. They wanted to be as close as possible. When he came ruling in his kingdom, they wanted to be on his right and his left hand. And, And Jesus told them, be careful what you wish for. Be careful for the kingdom that you ask for. But when James was killed, it didn't stop them from praying. Please pick up on this lesson for your own personal life and application. God hears your prayers. We don't always get what we ask for, but that doesn't mean he's not hearing. But don't stop praying. The death of James did not mean the church shouldn't pray for Peter. Does that make sense to us? Just because you've had some setbacks in your life or because God hasn't answered in the way that you had hoped or anticipated or even expected that he would, you thought he should. Don't stop praying. Ernest praying says, listen, though I have suffered loss, so it has not happened as I thought it would or should. I will persist in praying. I will not stop. This will not cause me to stop. It will push me to more prayer. Ernest prayer is not casual or occasional you know, I, I prayed for that, did that, checked it off. I'm one and done. That's not earnest praying. Just a, you know, sort of superficial, hey, pray for me, I'm going through, yeah, I got to pray for it. God bless them right now and, and be with them. I, what does that even mean? He's not ever not with you. Pray for something important. Pray for something specific so that when it comes, you'll, you'll know that the answer is given to you. But pray persistently, not casually. Earnest prayer is desperate prayer. And surely the desperation would have been felt by them. We've lost James. God, please give us Peter. Look at verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, and bring him out is again that show of a trial. When he was about to bring him out on that very night, look at God's timing. On that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison and behold an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell he struck Peter on the side if this wasn't so serious and so dramatic it would almost be funny here's Peter asleep he strikes him on the side and woke him saying get up quickly and the chains fell off his hands and the angel said to him dress yourself put on your sandals get up man get dressed let's go And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. Now look at Peter's state. Peter's in a daze here. Out of a sound sleep, he's nudged awake, told to get up and get dressed, put your coat on and get going. And look what he says. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But he thought he was seeing a vision. Peter imagines he's dreaming this. When he had passed the first And then the second guard, and they came to the iron gate leading into the city, it opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along the street, and immediately the angel left him. At this moment, Peter finally figures out what's going on. Holy cow, that just happened. Did this just happen? Don't minimize the miracle here. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. What were they expecting? His head. When he realized this, what God had done, what did he do? When he realized this is real, that God had just performed a delivering miracle for him, what does he do? He went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. This is clearly a very significant and apparently sizable early house church. He goes to where the group of Christians were praying, and the Bible says there were many of them there. Again, this is a bit, if it weren't so serious and dramatic, it would almost be comedic. When he knocked on the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate. But she ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. He just busted out of prison. And she leaves him at the gate. I mean, it's almost comedic. Can you imagine? This is the frenzy of this. They said to her, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it is his angel. Now, they believed in those days, or some did in those days, that God had blessed each person with a guardian angel. And not only did you have a guardian angel, but that guardian angel actually looks like you. And so I said, no, no, it's not him. It's, it's his angel. But Peter continues knocking. Can you imagine? Peter's like, are you serious here? (laughs) Do you you not know what just happened here? He continues knocking. And when they opened, they saw him, and they were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He says, go tell them. Why did you tell James and the brothers? It's interesting. This is just a little footnote, a very small footnote to the text. God had done a miraculous work of initiating the church, birthing the church through the ministry of the apostles. But already in the book of Acts, we see the emergence of elders. Elders in the church. Who is leading the church? Now the elders. The apostles were those who had been personally with Jesus, and God had granted apostolic authority and teaching. But now the elders are in place. Go tell them, and James was one of those. Tell those things to James and the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Another small footnote to the text is this. We don't know where he went. I don't think that means anything other than he went into some short period of hiding. Roman Catholic theology, which is often extra biblical, and I say that with as much gentleness as I can, says he went to Rome now. Well, no, he didn't. He did not go to Rome and become the first pope there. He simply went away from the persecution for a period. Now, when day came, There was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Well, you can imagine. You can imagine the furor of that. After Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries, and he ordered that they should be put to death. This was just part of their code. If you're guarding someone, and you allow that person to escape, or you're part of their escape, then you're subject to the penalty penalty that they were facing. Why were they put to death? Because Peter had a sentence of death he examined the centuries order that they should be put to death then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and he spent time there interesting the church wasn't despairing they were praying earnestly in desperate prayer but they weren't despairing they weren't without hope we know they weren't without hope because they continued to pray the mark of hopelessness is prayerlessness If I've I've given up, how will I know first? Because I just stopped praying. They weren't despairing, they were praying. And it's interesting, Peter, maybe it's just incidental, I don't know, but it sure looks like Peter had some faith here. Because Peter wasn't stressing. Peter wasn't pleading for his life. But Peter doesn't seem to be worried at all about what's going to take place next. Peter was asleep. You know, if you're a college student, you may not be able to sleep sometimes before a big exam. If you've got a stressful day at work or some tough meetings ahead, you may find yourself in a sleepless night. You've got some conflict, you know, you've got to deal with the next day with a, a neighbor or a friend or a family member. It may cause sleeplessness for you. Peter knows what he's there for, and he knows what happened to James. He's asleep. What does that say? Well, the bottom line, as I mentioned a moment ago, is only divine intervention could have accomplished this. That's the point of the story. I mean, really, the story of Acts could have continued without chapter 12. We could have moved from 11 straight to 13. But it's an important reminder to the church about the power of God at work here. Let's not ever think that this is just about us. Because, man, human pride is so poisonous. Particularly in ministry, when you see people responding to you, you see numbers coming, you see your influence growing, there's that insidious part of us that says, that's got to be me. Look at me. Thank you, God, for blessing me. Thank you, God, for using me. Thank you, God, me. But this is about God. I think it's a bit ironic, and I just include this for a moment. I don't know exactly what to make of it, but it's ironic to me that they prayed for this to happen. The Bible says they prayed earnestly, and when it did happen, they were shocked. I'm not sure how you can do both those things at the same time, but apparently you can. Don't be shocked. When God answers the specific things you're praying for, they were shocked. Well, look what happens next. You see here at Agrippa's response, frustrated angry, where does he go? He goes to Caesarea. Caesarea is the capital city, the Roman capital city of Judea. We talked about this a little bit before in a previous message, and we talked about the gospel heading to Caesarea. This is where Cornelius was found. Well, now Agrippa gathers in Caesarea, He's there in the amphitheater, and something really interesting happens. I wanna show you a picture of the amphitheater in Caesarea. It's right over there. Can you see it? <laughs> no, sorry, that's Brazil. There you go. This is, a modern, this is a modern picture today. The only thing that's missing is a backdrop because they still do concerts there. You can visit this today. Some of those who went with us to the Holy Land can see this. But it's one of the great structures from the Roman era that's still preserved well in the Holy Land. But it's there on the water, Caesarea. Caesarea by the Sea, city of Caesar, and in this great amphitheater where shows and performances were done. Imagine a seat that you can't see, a royal box seat probably right here behind us absent the picture is where Herod Agrippa is. And the people are gathered all around him. So imagine several thousand people in this amphitheater and listen to what happens next. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon and they came to him with one accord and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because the country depended on the king's uh, country for food. So imagine that this, I'm not going to go into detail on that, just this political event taking place and they're honoring him as king. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, he took his seat upon the throne and he delivered an oration to them. So now speaking in this amphitheater, he delivers this oration to them. And it's interesting, scripture only tells us that he put on his royal robes. Historian Josephus gives a little bit of colorful commentary to this event. He says that Herod Agrippa had royal robes that were made of silver, not colored silver. They were made of silver, actual silver, so that when they glistened in the sun, it had this, well, godlike appearance. It was for show and for effect. So if you can imagine... A megalomaniac standing addressing thousands of people in a robe made of silver. This is the scene. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took a seat upon the throne, delivered an oration to them, and the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And Herod did nothing to refute that. He had nothing to say, whoa, whoa, cool your jets, pump the brakes, just a guy here. No, the implication here is he encouraged that, and as was his position, which others did too, he encouraged this notion, this ridiculous notion that he's more than a man, that he's like a god, that he's a demigod. And so he encourages this worship, this adulation, and this is the great irony of the text it tells us about the unstoppable church. The voice of a god, not of a man, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms. And he breathed his last. Look at verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. The one that thought he could fight God. The one that that thought he could stop the gospel. The one that thought he could end the mission. Crush the church. There's a reason why this is preserved for the early church. And preserved for the contemporary church. The modern church. This blustering fool who thought he was a god, died that moment, struck down by the one true God. But the word of God, the mission of God, the gospel of God, the church of God, all that increased and multiplied. The side note is Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. I'll give you a few thoughts and application for today, and then I'm going to close Let me remind you, just like they learned again and again and again, because they had to, you know, sometimes I think we don't have to, or we think that we don't have to. You know, we've developed systems and programs and strategies, and you know, we have a long history of of doing church. I was talking to some leaders in other church. I won't name any of the details, but they were struggling, struggling post-COVID, struggling with attendance, struggling with finances, struggling with morale. And they were looking to another church. They were looking to, an example, uh, a template that they could adopt or adapt and follow. And one of those leaders said, you know, those guys know how to do church. We don't. They know how to do church. We don't. And I'm afraid there's a great deal of reliance on human methods and methodologies and structures and systems and ingenuity and craftiness and all those things. We need to come back to the reality and be reminded that we will always de- be dependent on God and prayer. Amen. Everything else is a facade. If God is not doing it, it's a facade. It's a temporary facade. If it's not something that's born out of prayer, it's a facade. It's something that we have made by hand. It's like it's like a, a scene from a play. It's, it's like going to a, an elaborate television set and thinking that's a beautiful house, but it's nothing more than the framework of the front. There's nothing behind it. In a devotional written by A.W. Tozer on Christian leadership, he quotes Zechariah 4.6. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Quoting that verse, Tozer writes this he says I say this because it's possible to run a church and all its activity without the Holy Spirit you can organize it get a board together call a pastor form a choir launch a Sunday school a ladies aid society you get it all organized and the organization part's not bad I'm for it but I'm warning about getting organized getting a pastor and turning the crank turning the crank some people think that's all there is to it you know The Holy Spirit can be absent, and the pastor goes on turning the crank, and nobody finds out about it for years and years. What a tragedy, my brothers. What a tragedy that this can happen in a Christian church. But it doesn't have to be that way. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you could increase the attendance of your church until there's no more room, if you could provide everything they have in churches that men want and love and value, and yet you didn't have the Holy Spirit, you might as well have nothing at all. For it is not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. Not by the eloquence of a man, not by good music, not by good preaching, but it is by the spirit that God works his mighty works. And then he offered this prayer. Oh Lord, I have no desire to run a church, or have any part of just turning the crank. In whatever ministry I'm ever involved, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be present with his controlling power. We're still dependent. The cause of that will never be dependent on personalities or people. Think about that for a moment. I won't belabor that point. The true church is never dependent upon an individual or a group. I'm sure that the absence of James was hard felt. As would have been the absence of Peter, the loss of those men. But the true church goes on. It's not dependent on those personalities. It's not dependent on those people. You see, the success of the mission is always because of God's promise and God's power. And remember, what we're doing, we talk about the Great Commission here, which we've spoken of a lot because it's foundational to the book of Acts. It starts off the book of Acts, Acts 1.8. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. It's not just a command, it's a promise. You will be. I'm going to see to it. You're going to be my witnesses. It's a promise empowered by him. I throw this out at you for your consideration, too. If we're doing this right, if we're truly representing the king, his kingdom, advancing into the enemy's kingdom, if we're standing up for what's true, if we're standing up for what's biblical, if we're representing what's of God, if we're doing this right, we, too, will be persecuted. Jesus said that, not me. I'm just paraphrasing him. You know, if you love the world, then you, don't, you need not fear the persecution of the world. But if you follow Christ, he says, you'll be persecuted as I was persecuted. And that's okay. We need to understand that's okay. We don't seek it. We're not spiritual sadists, masochists. We're not jumping off the pinnacle of the temple, so to speak, trying to prove God. We're not seeking out the persecution. We shouldn't fear it. We shouldn't see it as something so unexpected, so unusual that it should never happen to us. We should know that God will set all those things right one day because God and his church will not be defeated. That's the message. It's not going to be defeated. It doesn't mean there won't be setbacks. There doesn't mean there won't be high costs to be paid. It doesn't mean there won't be challenges and difficulties. But the real deal, the true thing is Gamaliel recognized, we can't stop this. This is of God. And you can take your confidence in that. Let's pray together this morning. Father God, thank you for Jesus, the Savior King of all who will come to him in faith. Thank you for the kingdom that Jesus offers to all who will receive him. Thank you for the promises that you've made to us. You've never not kept one. We can trust that you will keep all the ones still outstanding. Thank you for inviting us into your kingdom, into your mission, into your plan. Now give us confidence. Give us boldness. Give us peace. Give us readiness. And not just in some nebulous, undefinable, collective sense, but in our own worlds, our own relationships. I pray, as we heard earlier, that we would be the aroma of Christ wherever we go. We know that for some, that'll be death to death. They're spiritually dead and they'll refuse and reject. We don't know who will, who won't, but may we still be Christ to them. I pray increasingly we'll be the aroma of life to life for some. We'll see people come to Jesus. We'll see the miracle of faith and regeneration and salvation. But God, whatever we face individually, whatever we face collectively, may we resolve to be faithful, useful, vocal, prayerful, and confident. Lord, I pray you make that so for us. Lord, speak to us now. Lord, encourage us now by your Spirit. Lord, strengthen us now. Listen, as you pray, and I ask all the believers in this room just to pray for a moment, I want to offer this if you're not a believer yet. Very simply and briefly, there are two kingdoms in this world. One is a kingdom of darkness, which leads to everlasting death. You don't have to choose to be in that kingdom. You are born into it by sin. Your sins and, and your rejection of God by virtue of those sins has put you at enmity with God. One day when Jesus comes to consummate the everlasting kingdom, there's a great judgment coming. And when Jesus the king judges all those who have sinned, we will will be found unworthy to enter that kingdom of his. And not just unable to enter the kingdom, but condemned. Condemned to eternal punishment. But God, who's rich in mercy, has offered a way into his kingdom. He sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to conquer the enemy. The sin that brings death and deserves everlasting punishment, Jesus took that penalty and that death on himself on the cross. But Jesus is no martyr. He's no mere sacrifice. He is the Son of God coming back in glory. He was resurrected, crowned king, One day, that Jesus who was raised from the grave, who appeared to many, is going to come again in glory. Listen, I say that to say there are two kingdoms which do you choose to be a part of today. The one you're in already or the one that God offers you in Christ. That kingdom is available to anyone who put their faith in Him. Say, God, forgive me a sinner. I declare Jesus to be king of my life. My Lord, my Savior. My Savior put your spirit in me, make me new, make me yours forever. If you'll call out to him, he will save you. Listen, we'd love to talk to you about that this morning, and here's what we're going to do. In just a moment, we're going to begin to sing a song, but I want to invite you to do something particular today. I want to invite Christians, the church, to pray. Let's pray for the unstoppable church. Pray for the advance of the gospel here in our city and beyond. Let's pray. I invite you to come and pray. Find a place to kneel or stand, or kneel where you are in your seats, or stand and pray. But let's pray. And while believers are praying, if you're not a believer yet, you want to become one today. I want to invite you to walk down one of those aisles, slip out of one of those rows where you are, take the hand of one of the pastors standing here, and let's walk you into the kingdom of God today. Let's begin your new life together today. Father God, make these things so for Your glory the good of those who need you, the blessing of this church, I pray in Jesus' name.
2: The bliss, my sin. Oh. the da...